This is part two of Origin Stories. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please head back and listen now. Previously on Human Resources. How did Britain's slaving past begin? What the Portuguese do, they have diplomatic negotiations with the Vatican and they secure a couple of papal bulls that assure that the Portuguese have not only rights of enslavement over the Africans that they quote unquote find in these territories, but also that they have the right to enslave all the Africans that they find. I want to rewind for a moment before the Catholic Church starts handing out agreements that the Portuguese can enslave Africans in a country the church has nothing to do with. In Portugal, we don't debate that we were the first to create the transatlantic slave trade. We don't teach children in, in school that we were the country that most enslaved for the longest time. We don't even know how many Portugal has, diasporic, Afro-descendant, we don't know. I'm Moya Lothian McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. In part one of Origin Stories, we explored the dominant narratives around the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. Namely, that it was pioneered by the Portuguese, who colonised key parts of Africa and then was picked up by other burgeoning European empires, like the one being built by the English. But within every accepted history are a multitude of stories, interpretations and conflicting truths. Now I want to understand how the origins of slavery are explained from the perspective of those who were enslaved. What are the stories the likes of the Congo people told about the invention of transatlantic slavery? Were African kings complicit in the enslavement of their people? What does this history look like to those whose voices are often relegated to the background in the retelling of it? Is Portugal really responsible for chattel slavery taking root? I think we have to take that very seriously in the way that Portugal was perhaps the first European country in the early modern period to go to Africa and begin perhaps what you may call, you know, the transatlantic slave trade. This is Jose. My name is Jose Lingna Nafafe. I specialize in Atlantic slave trade. Jose says that Portugal did kick off the slave trade via trade agreements with the Vatican. Portugal was important in the transatlantic slave trade because it was the first country in Europe to ask for monopoly of Africa in terms of its trade from the Vatican in the mid-15th century. So for that reason, the claim that Portugal was the inventor, which was a term used by Fernando de Oliveira, who was a Portuguese priest in the 16th century, talked about Portugal being a country that invented slave trade and no other European country did that. So from that point of view, that particular claim can be seen to be true in what happened in Africa, in particular West Coast of Africa in the mid 15th century. Is there any truth to the idea that slavery was present in Africa before the Europeans got there? What we need to understand is perhaps the first 
term that we are using here, slavery or slaves. What do we mean by it? Very often, this has become a very confusing understanding of the use of the term. We take the understanding from the European perspective. Europe, ancient Greece, Romans were practicing slavery thousands of years prior to going to Africa. And that practice in itself became known in Europe. And by the 15th century, it's been taken for granted that this was something practiced universally. So this is where Africa was sort of locked into this kind of debate that Africa was already practicing slavery. But what we got to also understand that this period was not a period free of ideology. Portugal that went to Africa, Portugal that was the first country to ask the Pope for the monopoly of trade in Africa needed to justify the reason to being there. In particular, the reason for capturing the African. That capturing the African stemmed from Portugal in the understanding that they were doing what you may call the crusading war against the infidel, crusading war against the enemy of Christ. So the African, in particular, the Muslim, the Moor who conquered the Iberian Peninsula in the earlier century, Portugal get rid of the Moors almost into the 15th century. From that point onward, what they did into Africa, their kind of journey into Africa was the continuation of that. So as a result of that, what they were doing at that time was seen as a, this struggle for maintaining the struggle for cleansing the region or the world, if you like, in the name of Christianity. So the bulls that Pope gave in 1455 was precisely on that ground. I'm giving you the permission, but that permission was you can enslave the African in the name of Christianity if they did not accept it. So prior to the Portuguese arrival, there was what you may call servitude, like any other nation would have. But was that a slavery? No, not necessarily. We cannot call that slavery. You look at the terms that are used in the African language to describe what the practice of slavery is, is not anywhere close to understanding of how we understand slavery in the early modern era, so-called the transatlantic slave trade. So how did the Portuguese introduce slavery to West Africa? They took Christianity to the African rulers, African kings. Some accepted it, some didn't. So they find their way through African hospitality who hosted some of the merchant. They stayed there for years. And then they became dominated by the European, by the Portuguese himself. As a result of that, kings who were converted to Christianity were immediately seen as an ally of Portugal. What does that mean? Being an ally meant somebody who was a conquered ruler, a conquered king. You have to give up quite a lot. One of the first things you give up is you accept Christianity. You accept the pattern that was practiced in Portugal, which is you are going now to conquer kingdoms, to expand Portuguese interest in the region. That is the first thing, as a Christian ruler, as a Christian king. Second, you have to also allow your own territory to be the territory from which the Portuguese can recruit men of war because you are armed. Those men of war are 
soldiers that will be fighting alongside the Portuguese to expand their own territory. Second thing or third thing, you also have to give permission to the priest, the Roman Catholic priest, to settle in your region, to do their mission of Christianity. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. So Christianity was the vehicle which Portugal used to gain allies within African nations. What's next on the list? What else would be expected of these kings who were basically forced into allyship with Portugal? Your land is now belonging to the king of Portugal. You have to pay your tax. What is this tax that you pay to the Portuguese king at that time? Initially, when they started, you pay chicken, goat, cows, with one or two enslaved persons. That was your duty in the understanding of how you are now part of the establishment, part of the political structure, economic structure of Portugal. But by the 1626, I found a document in the Portuguese archive for the first time. What this document revealed was that the Portuguese governor of Angola called Fernando de Souza revamped all the system, tax system that was existing prior to 1626. And this tax system is what Fernando Souza called the eternal tax system. I repeat, the eternal tax system. What does that mean? It meant that all the rulers who were conquered, kings, need to pay 100 enslaved persons per year to Portugal. He scrapped all the other tributes, including timbers, chicken, cows, and other things. He said those animals, they were traveling, they were brought in from a long distance to Luanda. By the time they arrive there, most of them are dead. So all of this is just a waste of time. This time, the tax system became human being. Call it a new currency. What Garcia II, the king of Congo, said, this has become the currency that our forefathers didn't know anything about. Our currency that was shell that was other form of exchange that was being used at that time. He said, this is no longer existing. The introduction 
of what the Portuguese call baculamento at that time, I'm using here the term used in the Kimbundu language, was a local tax system. But the Portuguese make use of that. They now introduced a new system. Rather than a system that the local people knew of you paying tribute to your superior. So this is how, going back to the question, how the Portuguese introduced the system of slavery. Once Christianity enabled Portugal to gain allies and conquer kingdoms within Africa, then they taxed them, upping the ante and ending the tradition of tributes and introducing the enslaved tax. Tax price itself became enslaved Africans. African kings that were not conquered, African kings that were not allied, were not paying these taxes. That is, has to be made very clear. And when people say the African were involved, they're participating in the slave trade, people miss the point. The point is, once you are a conquered person, nothing you can do, you have to go along with the system. And this is why the slave trade was introduced on the west coast of Africa. And people say, oh, the coastal people were very much involved in the slave trade. They were the one hunting people. Did you really understand what was going on? Do you understand the politics of what was going on at that time? This is the politics. A system was introduced, a tax system was introduced. Once you are an ally, you have to follow all of that. What then you get in return? You get in return a protection. And you may think, okay, protection of what? You get the protection from the Portuguese against your own people. Why? Why would you need a protection? It's simply because you are now at the ally being used to capture other people. You are creating conflict in the society. These people are going to come back to you. As a result of that, the army, the Portuguese with firearm would say, we would protect you. You go along and do what we ask you to do. The other benefit also that the conquered ruler would get from Portugal was that their children will be educated in the Portuguese system. They would have the education. We've seen that happening in the Congo when Afonso I came into power. He was a student at the Jesuit college for nine years because his father converted to Christianity in the 16th century. When he came to power by 1512, he was already a Christian. He was the one to turn Congo into a Christian Congo. When did the Portuguese slave system move from being one of taxation and forced allyship between kingdoms into the full-blown slavery as we know it today? Or was that something that began when other European nations got involved in this transatlantic slave trade? One thing here we have to bear in mind, when we talked about the transatlantic slave trade, we're talking about Portugal being the first country in Europe to do this. We got to understand that this was not just Portugal alone. Transatlantic slave trade was a European project. It didn't matter that time where the center was. The center was in Portugal. Until 1580, when the union of the two crown came, and that is Spain and Portugal, was dominating the political scene, the center then moved to Madrid rather than Lisbon. So that's what we got to bear in mind, that this was a European project. The people who were investing money for the slave trade weren't only the Portuguese. The Italian merchants were involved in it. The British was involved in it. The French was involved in it. The Dutch were involved in it. All the European countries were part of it. 
but the lead was taken by Portugal. We need to make this very clear. But from the point of view of talking, when Portugal landed in West Coast of Africa, how everything began, it began with them because they were the one that given perhaps what you may call the authority by the Pope, which they asked the Pope. So to go back to your question, the system as we know it, it became, and maybe before I said anything, one thing we have to make very clear is that the system didn't just stop when Portugal started. When other Europeans came into power, they were following the footsteps set by the Portuguese. Laws or regulation about slavery was not any different. You look at what was happening by the Portuguese by the 18th century, 19th century, in particular Britain, 17th century, was doing the similar kind of thing that Portugal was doing. France was doing the same. The Netherlands was doing the same. Spain was doing the same. So th this is why I was saying this was a European project and this system was further developed. Hearing Jose's testimony makes me realise I need to know more about how the West African countries and territories that would become the main sources of Western slavers generally operated prior to colonisation. I've realised I don't even know how the region was divided. Empires, kingdoms, one centralised territory. So it's important to talk about the diversity within the region. Also, it's interesting to look over a long period of time to see how that takes shape, because at the start of that long period, you have quite a lot of empires in West Africa. You have the empire of Ghana, which was focused around what's now Mauritania, but it had influence and control over quite a wide region stretching into what's now Senegal and Mali. This is Toby Green, author and professor of pre-colonial and Lusophone African history at King's College London. He's a specialist in the history of pre-colonial West Africa. And fun fact, he's also my former university tutor. Then you had the Mali Empire itself, which encompassed also regions such as what's now Guinea, Conakry, Burkina Faso, and then the Songhai Empire later. So you have different empires. So then they fragment and eventually Songhai collapses at the end of the 16th century. Then you start having the rise of somewhat smaller but powerful central states in the savannah regions like Asante in what's now Ghana or your in what's now southern Nigeria for instance Dahomey in Benin as well as decentralized communities in which leadership and authority is much more horizontal so you have a whole range really across that time span but there is a tendency to move towards from these large empires certainly in savannah and Sahel to smaller powerful centralised states and then these decentralised communities on the coast. Are any of these empires already interacting with places like Portugal and England prior to the 16th century? In many ways, I think West Africa was more globalised than quite a number of areas, not all of Europe. I mean, obviously, Venice had a lot of global connections and various places did. But certainly Britain, for example, or northern Europe was definitely, I would say, less globalised than West Africa in the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries. So there are annual caravans leaving the empire of Mali for Mecca, passing through Cairo and Tripoli and cities like that. And there are whole communities of West Africans living in Cairo. And actually, the French scholar Hadrien Collet has done some really interesting research on that recently. And you had diplomatic connections, for example, from Borno, which was a state in northern Nigeria with what became the Ottoman Empire. And you have also evidence of trading connections to China, porcelain from China, cowrie shells, which came from the Maldives, which are widely present in West Africa from the 13th century and before, in fact. So, you know, it's an area which is in quite a range of global connections and also has connections with southern Europe, not northern Europe, but 
Al-Andalus and Muslim Spain, we know that there were strong connections with the Empire of Mali uh, the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And an image which some of your viewers will know of the Catalan Atlas, image of Mansa Musa, the Emperor of Mali, holding a gold nugget, which was made in 1375, was produced by a cartographer in Mallorca. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Hosen Ngana, who I spoke with earlier in the episode, is adamant that West Africa didn't practice slavery in the sense we understand it before the arrival of the Europeans. Does your research suggest the same? I think that here language is not our friend. The word slavery is used to describe actually many different kinds of institutions. And in some regions, there was something which might a little bit resemble that institution in that there was a trans-Saharan slave trade, that's well known, and it did exist at that time, although it was certainly not nearly as intense as it became in the 18th century. And it was not fundamentally a slave trade based around labour, chattel slavery, and production of economic surplus. That was not the focus of the trans-Saharan slave trade. In fact, the evidence is that it was more gendered, in fact, and it was children and young women who were more involved in the trans-Saharan slave trade than was the case in the Atlantic. And there was different economic dimensions. I think the fundamental difference was that it doesn't appear that there was an economic dimension in that. And certainly within West African societies, slavery, and this is a really important distinction, I think, was really an institution, well, I use the word slavery, it's not the right word because it doesn't describe what was happening, but it's the word which historians have tended to use. You could call it dependence, was really an institution which was designed to incorporate outsiders into a community, to expand the community, you know, outsiders, foreigners, maybe prisoners of war, as happened in many societies, might be incorporated within a society and be in a position of dependence and, and not have the same rights as members of the original community. But in time, through lineage patterns and descent, their descendants would gain some of those rights. So it was a way of expanding the community and incorporating people, whereas, as we know, in the Atlantic world, slavery was really a means of excluding people and marginalising them through racialization. So it was an extremely different perspective. It's interesting hearing how slavery can be framed. Even the contrast in tone between how Jose and Toby speak can give you a different view of the slavery variations that were taking place. So when do we first see contact between the West and West Africa for the purpose of enslavement? Portuguese, as they begin to move down the West African coast in the 15th century, so from the 1440s arrive at the Senegal River, which is now the border between Senegal and Mauritania in 1442. And initially... You know, the Americas haven't been discovered. There is no transatlantic slave trade. There is a slave trade, though, to Portugal. And we know that by 1550, 10% of the population of Lisbon was African or of African descent, which shows that this was really a significant trade. 
And we have to put this in the context. 1442, it's less than a century after the Black Death in Europe. There's a real demographic shortage in many places, but in Portugal, we know that actually much land had been lost to Bush because of the demographic collapse. And in fact, some of the early sources from the 1460s and 1470s talk about the role of, of African slaves in Portugal in clearing some of this land. So we know that that is a context. So it's to do with labour straight away, which is important, because again, as I say, that is a different context. There's a demographic question. But then, of course, the discovery of the Americas is what really transforms these relationships. So when the Portuguese first begin to travel down the African coast so that you know they are interested in that but they're fundamentally really interested in gold actually and gold is the main driver of their exchange so when they reach what they called the gold coast in the 1470s they then in 1482 negotiated with Kwame Ansa, who was the king at what's now called El Nino to build a fortress there, which is still an enormous fortress, uh, which was started to be built in the 1480s. And that was because that was the centre where they could access gold there. And so obviously that was in the 1480s. The discovery of the Americas changes that. In fact, we know that Christopher Columbus himself actually was at that fortress on the Gold Coast. So there is a connection between what was happening in, in West Africa and what happened in the Americas. And of course, then that Spanish expansion in the Americas fundamentally changed that relationship. It takes a century, really, for that transition to take place. In the 16th century, there isn't a huge transatlantic slave trade. There is a transatlantic slave trade. But as I say, gold and and other commodities are, you know, one of the driving forces for the Portuguese in West Africa at that time. But then with the expansion in Brazil from the 1570s onwards and the increase in sugar production in Brazil and then islands in the Caribbean in the early 17th century, that's when the transformation really takes shape. What does that process look like on the West African side? How does something like enslavement become entrenched? Is it destabilising? That's the only way I can imagine it taking root without a pushback strong enough to repel enslavement altogether. I think what one can say is that this process is very disruptive of existing frameworks. Funny enough, you know, one of the students in a course I teach at King's once made that point and we were talking about it. He said, you know, fundamentally, it's very disruptive of every existing framework. And that, I think, is a very insightful view from, from that. So Michael Bennett, actually, who's finished his PhD now at Sheffield. But because we know that, as you say, Congo, for example, we know we have a pre-existing centralised kingdom of Congo, which becomes a, a major partner of the Portuguese. I think it's fair to say the ambassadors of Congo in Portugal, evangelization and conversion is a very important part of Congo in contrast to virtually every other West African kingdom in the 16th century. But we also know that that centralization process led to huge internal tensions and structural tensions, which eventually led to the fragmentation of Congo and, and it's eventually collapsed into civil war in the second half of the 17th century. We could take a look at a different area, Senegambia, where on the arrival of the Portuguese in the 15th century, there's a federation of, of coastal provinces which are subject to a powerful interior centre known as the Great Jolof. But then by 100 years later, that interior centre has lost its control over the provinces on the coast because they've been able to trade with the Portuguese, gain access to cavalry, weaponry, and then break away from it. So it's disruptive. I think that's what you can say. What it looks like on the West African coast is, is disruptive. Kingdoms rise and fall. New kingdoms and powerful kingdoms arise. Other very powerful ones fragment because of the forces that it creates. So I think the fundamental thing that is experienced is a disruption of existing power structures. What are the most common myths regarding Africa, particularly West Africa, and probably the British slave trade, but also the slave trade in general, that we need to challenge? 
one of the most important ones, this idea that somehow Africans sold Africans. I mean, that's to completely misunderstand West African society in the, in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. The Congolese scholar Valentin Mudimbe wrote, wrote a classic book in 1989, The Invention of Africa, where he shows how the idea of Africa emerges through this globalisation and Atlantic slave trade and racism, which is emerging at this time. And I often ask students, what does somebody in Senegambia have in common with somebody in Congo, say, in the 15th century? Well, actually, the answer is they probably have much more in common with somebody from Portugal, because let's remember that Arabic is a language being spoken in Portugal in the 15th century. That Islam is a shared religion which bridges Iberia and Senegambia at that time. And none of that is true with Congo. You know, even if you were to travel by boat, it would take you three or four months because of the currents. There are many ways in which it forces us to understand, you know, people did not see themselves in those terms. They saw themselves just as the English and French were enemies and often captured one another and did terrible things to one another. You know, they saw themselves in terms of the language they spoke, the shrines they worshipped at, the shared fashions and foods and all of those kinds of things. But, you know, they didn't see themselves as Africans. So I think that's really one of the most important myths. What sort of influence did all of this have on the political structures we see today in West Africa? I think we can see that very much in terms of relationships to the state, thinking about the comparisons with other forms of slavery, its economic function, and the way in which that economic function had a clear economic impact in West African societies, and turned those states. Walter Rodney, the, the famous Guyanese historian, author of How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, published in 1972, described an alliance of European and African elites at the expense of the African poor and saw that as a structural continuity between pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial eras. And I think that that relationship and its relationship it has to state power and between elites and subjects are clearly structured questions in post-colonial Africa. It's clear that the origins of the slave trade are a relatively untapped topic, particularly when explored from a non-Western perspective. There's so much history here, I fear that we've barely scratched the surface. And we'll come back here to Jose and Toby in the future. But for now, we're going to head closer to home. It's time to turn the spotlight on a nation that played an outsized role in British slavery, but flies curiously under the radar when it comes to examining its legacy. Join me next week to lift the tartan curtain. If you've enjoyed this episode or past episodes, please rate and review our show in your favourite podcast app. It helps more people discover the show. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian-McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Arisa Lumba and Dr Alison Bennett. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Lex Ademora. Social assets by Forward Slash. This is a Broccoli production.